Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, a podcast of Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and the Pop Sequentialism blog and exhibitions. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and I have with me here today my special guest, Mr. Christopher Sapp. Hey, guys. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Um, Chris is actually currently exhibiting in La Luz de Jesus Gallery. He's an assemblage artist. Um, But what I think makes him a really interesting guest specifically for this show is um, Christopher is known to most people who know him as a dealer in collectibles and comics and horror stuff and that type of thing. And his artwork, which is assemblage based, and he can also paint, but um, the majority of what people know of his artwork, they'll they'll recognize certain pieces of classic toys in with a whole bunch of other ephemera to make these sometimes very small and intimate sculptures and sometimes these incredibly large format um, assemblage sculptures. And people recognize, especially collectors, different toys, um, whether it's, you know, Kenner action figures or Matchbox cars or Hot Wheels going back to, you know, Raupatha, Grenadier type figures from the role playing games and just about anything else you can imagine. And so um, I want to talk first, I think, about, um, you know, your life in collectibles. You know, talk a little bit about, you know, your family and that type of thing. Well, I grew up in that. I'm a child of the 70s, born in June 21st, 1973. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my father was kind of like an American picker, dealing in soda and oil, Mm -hmm. you know, signs. And he had a little bit of movie stuff. And what happened was there was a fire. And the only thing that was left was all the movie memorabilia so he's like okay I'll, I'll try this it's kind of amazing that that's what survived yeah you know, well, in a collection full of aluminum signs aluminum signs yeah aluminum signs and uh, oil you know old oil you know tins and, tins and paraphernalia yeah. Um, yeah he tried that and he's like okay and then it started working and when it really started working I was born I was seven days on the boob of my mom and my dad comes in he's like I left my business, and at the time, my, my dad was, like, vice president of a lumber mill. Mm-hmm. And my mom's just like, what? And he's like, we're just going to sell this. We're going to sell movie posters. We're going to sell beer cans. She's like, oh, my God. So this is going back to 1973. Mm-hmm. So your dad was a professional memorabilia dealer. You're talking about, golly, this has got to be four years before Hollywood Book and Poster opened. Mm-hmm. My dad started doing it probably late 69 early 70s wow and at the time you could find this stuff in you know 
droves. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't unheard of. Like a movie theater would close down and you'd go to the basement. And depending on how old this theater was, since we lived in the Midwest, yeah, it went back to the 1930s. And, you know, you get film art posters yeah. and the classic Universal stuff on the, on the thicker stock. And so your mom is a... Uh, not just an archivist, but she's a, a professional restorer of posters, movie posters, and other archival paper things. Yeah, she actually started late in that. She always wanted to. She'd always expressed about talking about, not only talking about, about working on it and doing it. She always liked it. And she didn't really start until about maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she was assisting another gentleman. My name is Stan Stice. And she was helping him and... What makes what separates my mom from it a little bit is she is really anal about color. Mm-hmm. So she makes sure the colors match the exact color of that poster. And she tries to make sure, like, because some posters were done in stone litho. So she makes yeah. sure to replicate that. And it's got her notice. She has a, a one piece, was a Louise Brooks piece that's actually in the Max Factor Museum in LA. Mm-hmm. And then she's done stuff. Um, for other um, poster dealers like um, Maury Everett Sr., who's in New York, mm-hmm. uh, everyone knows him or his son, Mo Jr. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she's really starting to do that. But what she, I did, she do the Forbidden Planet restoration, the six sheet for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? No, she didn't do that one. She's done, a th- I think, a three sheet for the Day the Earth Stood Still. Right, right. A lot of stuff she's doing is, you know, is for the industry, but it's always like, um, there's a gentleman over at Warner Brothers who I believe is retired named Leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's done stuff for him for Warner Brothers archivals, you know, just like, hey, we have this poster falling apart. We need to keep it. Yeah. And they're like, this is the only one we have. And so she matches the colors and the paper with that time frame. Paper and- stock's the hardest stuff to match. But I mean, if you think about it, it's what a wonderful time to be an archivist and to be a restorer mm-hmm. because certainly as soon as 15 years ago studios were still just throwing things out right you you go to the paramount lot and you could open up a dumpster on a friday afternoon mm-hmm. and find real three four and five of you know four flies on gray velvet you know oh, yeah. or um and not just the fulci film or an argento film but sometimes classic american hollywood cinema and i know when they were doing the grand restoration on which was it? It was My Fair Lady that they realized that they had thrown out possibly the only negative that they could have restored the film back to its original grandeur with and they were able to locate the collector that pulled it out of the trash and I think Isaac Mizrahi put a lot of money into restoring it. Isaac Mizrahi, the fashion designer, has been a huge advocate for um, the restoring of classic films, specifically films that he feels have... um, an important impact on fashion and a lot of the things that Cecil Beaton worked on. But um, before we go too far down that road, and actually, I mean, that's almost a really great window to talk about what your wife does. Right. You know, we'll, we can get to that, but my wife, Melissa, is, is a designer for Runway. She mm-hmm. uh, was part of BCBG's Runway division and mm-hmm. now is on her own. But, you know, she's she has her stories and she's working. She says, it's... I, I always tease her. I said, do you want to watch Devil Wars products? She's like, why? I live that life. Yeah, yeah. No fun. No, she's no fun. Trauma. She says it's trauma, but she says she, she's put clothes on many celebrities and, you know, made things look really beautiful and has had stuff tour the world and um, 
you know, museum pieces and stuff like that. Yeah. So she's like been happy, but like with the restoration, like that my mother does, like what people got to understand, only a few people do it. Mm-hmm. And if people really are serious about rest- restoration is don't be scared by the price. And um, no, take that back. Be scared by the price. If it's too cheap, don't do don't it. Don't do it. Yeah. I sold uh, about 15, maybe 16 years ago a um, restored and I'll air quote that for people uh, listening to this who obviously can't see me um, a a breakfast at Tiffany's um, no it was a Roman holiday uh, Italian uh, subway poster and it had been so poorly restored um, it was almost like they had just slapped cut out letters on top of the, um, the original lettering <laughs> and the, the, you could see it was really really botched and um and it still, you know, I had to list that it wasn't wasn't original, but that type of poster and any image of uh, original issued um, promotional image of Audrey Hepburn was starting to get really, really valuable at that time. So I think even in the condition it was in, it was, you know, a six or $7,000 sale. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, you know, it's prices on things are getting really out of hand. But I think that condition plays an important role in that, just as we've seen in comic books where, you know, comic graded um books with a you know nine plus on them start going for crazy money i i hear that the guys over at uh comics factory in pasadena recently sold a walking dead number one rated 9.8 uh for like 2400 dollars, which sounds like crazy money to me but um you know that that would also be true of things like movie posters one great thing about restoration and even about something as simple in restoration as linen backing is that you can iron it out you know when when you when you restore uh you don't even necessarily need to restore some of the wrinkles go away creases are going to stay creases and and dents are going to stay um small things can easily be fixed and when i said like you know worry about the price being too low because there's a lot of people who do it like i'll do it and they they'll give you a quoting price and if it's like under 50 bucks walk away from it because you want to deal with a real archivist who's actually going to preserve your paper because what happens is a lot of these guys will use wallpaper paste and and cheap linen and cheap linen and what happens is is that wallpaper paste will turn yellow like a pea yellow yeah and it bleeds right through the white in the poster right and then depending on if it is if it's chemical based if it has any it will eat your poster so if you're dealing with somebody like a really hardcore rep like my mother or poster mountain Mm -hmm. they're going to use archival stuff that's going to last you'll be dead your grandkids will probably be dead but that's when the poster will probably fall apart but then your your poster and the cockroaches yeah the poster and your cockroaches are fine (laughs) so don't buy don't get cheap restoration get you know what's really sought after and get the good stuff so growing up in a household with a professional memorabilia dealer Mm -hmm. um obviously shaped you know who you are and what you do right and so um do you think that that's the biggest the biggest influence on why you gravitate towards genre films i know horror films and sci-fi and that type of thing is because that was the most common type of collectible being sought you know in the early years of your dad's business in the early years of my dad's business it was it was growing up in it like i mean it goes from anything from like seeing films on you know god the birth of the video store mm-hmm. um, yeah seeing actual films come in into theater and uh the birth of conventions mm-hmm. um i mean we can all expect like that but it was like yeah no i mean there was a lot like my dad had his business and 
as a little kid, you grew up with it. Like, you know, I grew up in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So there was a Channel 11. I think it was Channel 11 KPLR. Mm-hmm. And every Saturday, there was three films. After 1030s when they did three films. Now, this it, isn't St. Louis. This is out towards... Springfield? No, this is St. Louis. Yeah, St. Louis. I, I, okay. lived, I lived in South St. Louis. I lived about a block or two blocks from Anheuser Busch. Okay. Depending on when the wind, you can smell the hops. The hops in the air, yeah. <laughs> um, they, it was, it was amazing because like on Channel Eleven, like you would, they would either play you Laurel and Hardy or an Abbott Costello film, mm-hmm. and then after that, you would get maybe something from Toho, mm-hmm. be one of the Godzilla films. And then you might get something like Boston Blackie or Charlie Chan. Mm-hmm. And then the following week, it changed. Now, on Friday nights, they would play a horror science fiction film. But as what people got to understand, this is mainly stuff like from the 30s, 40s, and mid-50s. Nothing... Before the hammer yeah. really starts to happen. It's funny because in uh, I grew up north of Boston, and Channel 56, WLVI, had the Creature Double feature, and they went through... Uh, many different hosts over the years. Um, the glory days that I remember, not the earliest time, is when Son of Svengooli um, okay. was was the host and he would do his little sketches in between the, the commercial breaks. But it was the same kind of deal. Like you would they'd do the double feature. So the first film would often be a Toho um, Japanese monster movie. And the second would often be a universal horror film. And not necessarily one of the ones that we take for granted now, but, um, you know, you'd see, like, Brides of Dracula, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, Werewolf of London or something. You know, you, not necessarily the, the stuff that we consider the real classics, but, I mean, horror enthusiasts do think of these films as classics still. Right. And then as I got older, other stations would carry, like, the, the AIP stuff and the... Um, you know the amicus type of things those would be those are a little bit later and i think what had happened is that the guys programming were kind of growing up with us too you know they were maybe right. 20 years older than us and so they had an interest in things too and they wanted to dig through the vault and see what other neat stuff they could find and i'm sure they had little screening parties and decided what they were going to show what they had access to and um you know licensing issues aside that um it was really dependent upon just what they pulled out of that vault. And they had these gigantic vaults filled with films. Now, did your dad also like Eric Caden deal in, you know, 35 millimeter films and 16 millimeter films and that type of thing or trailers? My, you know, a few maybe came in and here and there, but my dad really wasn't about it because the film, I think he was, he dealt in slides and negatives. Yeah. But like actual films, if he knew it was coming up, he would pass on it just because he didn't. I think what it was was concerned about storage. And so right. I think we, we had probably about 10 canisters of film, but he's just like, I don't know what really to do with it. What to do with these, yeah. And Especially if you're not, if you're not you know, repped by some rights management company. Eric's dad, Stanley Caden, right. owned a huge library of films, right. um, most of which came out through Ted Turner. Right. You know, Turner Home Entertainment released Stagecoach and mm-hmm. his classic films. Stanley would see the copyright come up for renewal, mm-hmm. and he would go down to the copyright office and he would file the claim. So he owned all the RKO stuff. Right. And that's, you know... That's the beauty of like you know, what Eric Caden had, and mm-hmm. you know, sadly, what people understand that Eric Caden passed away. Yeah, but you know, 
Eric is part of that old guard of people. I can probably name about five or six people that people really need to pay more attention to. One would be my father. Yeah. Uh, one is Steve Sally up. And in, what's your dad's name? Roger Sapp. Roger Sapp. Uh, another one is uh, Steve Sally up in New Jersey, New York. Oh yeah, yeah. And then uh, remember the claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then there's you know Maury Everett, Eric Caden, or. Unfortunately, it was Eric Caden. I would say Ron Borsch. Ron, yeah. Borscht, yeah. And then maybe uh, Buddy from Cinema Collector, but Buddy's now out in Las Vegas. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by these? Because a lot of the kids I don't think nowadays are younger people. Know who they are. No, understand what's going on and the poster industry and how it is. I mean, everyone's familiar with Mondo yeah. and what's going on there. But a lot of this stuff harks back to these guys when they would trudge through old theaters or flea markets. And Mike Rainey, you know, something weird, had partnered very early on with Eric in um, trying to get the rights early on to Russ Meyer's stuff. Right. And um, Russ was, of course, still alive. And I, I've, I think I've told the story before about by I found a... A Russ Meyer tape in the video store that I worked at in high school um, <laughs> that wasn't out on the shelf and it's because the the owner thought that it might have been an x-rated film and didn't want to put it out and it wasn't it was you know it was like beyond the valley of the dollars or something and if you turned around it wasn't that one because that one was was MGM mm, I think so yeah so it was I think it was up and um, you turn if you flipped over the back of that videotape it had a phone number on it. <laughs> and so I called that phone number and Russ Meyer answered the phone. Like he actually ran his own business and he sold every single videotape of his movies, except for the um, the studio, the two studio films uh, to anybody who had that videotape in a video store. Right. And so um, there was a time when I know Vrainy was trying to license that, but instead he ended up getting all the Ted V. Mickle stuff and a lot of those other, you know, at, at that point, largely forgotten films, um, films that a lot of people were finding through like um, Sleazoid Express or uh, some of the fanzines that really catered to obscure horror movies. There was the um, one of the archival film columns that would pop up in Fangoria. And then there were even smaller um, genre publications that specialized in classic cinema, but that um, you had like Savage Steve's Trailers from Hell, was it? Yeah. And uh, Mad Ron's Trailers from Hell. <laughs> and then there was a couple other trailer compilations, and you had films like The Smut Peddler, which were hilarious um, trailers that got people into trying to find these these movies. Right. And then the drive-in double feature videotapes that were coming out through something weird. And um, instead of them being a, a, kind of like a pro bootlegging operation, they started actually licensing and um, getting the rights to stuff and doing revenue shares with the, with the original creators. But I think that, you know, like you say, it's like this was all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the seventies, you know, the slasher film hits in 1979 in earnest with the release of Halloween, Right. you know? Um, and people would say that, you know, when really Friday the 13th kicks off a new horror movie every weekend at the movie theater for the right. next eight or nine years. True. <laughs> and, and the second one borrowing its plot pretty much from Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, AKA Twitch of the Death Nerve. Right. And uh, you see that, and it brings me full circle back to my second guest, Steve Bissett, who had drawn that poster into a marquee in Swamp Thing. Right. You know, and so, like, you get horror comics become a thing again at the end of right. the 70s and the, and the early 80s. Um, you know, that um, obviously the circulation of magazines like Fangoria started to really climb. I think this is the first issue, 78? 
1977 or 1978, the Godzilla cover. Godzilla cover, I think it's 78. And then 9, 10, and 11 are like the Motel Hell. Yeah, number 9 is Motel Hell. Yeah. And number 8, I believe, is Full Cheese Zombie. Eight, no, it's Zombies After because oh, the first core cover was right. the Motel Hell and then Scanners. Right. And um, and those became the very collectible ones because those were banned from supermarket shelves. Right. And that's really where where fandom, as, as I think we know it today, that's probably the golden age. And then there's the people who were, who kind of started that fandom with their own fandom in some of the, um, the zines that were being produced in the late 60s. And one thing that I want to mention too is that, um, and I've known Chris for quite a long time now, and, and we've known each other because of collecting circles. Right. Way before I realized that you did art, and then I started showing your art. Right. And um, we're similar age and like minded. And it's been great that today, on the day that we're recording this show, and this show is going to go up really fast. This is one of the fastest turnarounds on a, on a recorded show that we've done, where um, this show is going to go live on Sunday, so it's only a couple of days away. So his show is still up. When you're listening to this, his show is still up at Lovely Stay Zeus. If you're in LA, I highly recommend you come and visit it. You can still check it out online if you can't come and visit it in person. But I had a curator from the Los Angeles Contemporary Museum of Art in my apartment today looking through a collection of magazines and comic books from my very small collection and from Chris's very large collection. Um, and they're sorting through them to see what's going to go into the Guillermo del Toro um, art exhibition at LACMA this July. So it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it seems like there's a great excitement in a very nostalgic way happening in los angeles oh yeah we got a new mad max movie you know very recently you know which really (laughs) kicks us back to 1979 again you know right and we had a new star wars movie last year and um you know there's a lot of the same kind of placeholders from our childhood are going to be these new placeholders for this generation that's maybe two generations younger than us right yeah no like hey you talk about the films like mad max and and Star Wars um, I was about seven no I was eight mm-hmm. I had saw Road Warrior in Houston Texas at a comic book show and this is where between the ages of seven and nine honestly my wife looks at my parents like there was no censorship like when I was seven yeah. I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show and Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. and in my house, uh, my dad's like, oh, let's see this movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My mom's like, are you sure? I'm like, dad's like, Ed's in it. Ed's Ed Neal, Ed, family friend. Ed, Ed Neal's family friend. <laughs> I'm like, who's he? He plays a hitchhiker. So to me, like all this stuff going on in Chainsaw, and everyone's like cringing. And I'm all like, oh, Ed's so silly. Look at him. Oh, that's probably jam on his hand. You're not my dad. You're just a cook. Yeah. I'm so like, oh, you like head cheese? And I'm all like... Okay, whatever. And then at Rocky Horror Picture Show, I'm like, wow, this is really amazing. The film like I saw when I was seven that freaked me out. And of course, this goes probably because having older brothers, if anyone has had older siblings, uh, was Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Now, two reasons. I, I came down right and they had the newscast. Like, we were breaking in, the dead are coming and consuming people. Yeah. And uh, if you live in the Midwest or in the East Coast, like maybe Boston had, and I know Jersey had a lot of cemeteries. We have a lot of cemeteries that don't have fences. They don't have gates. You just like, Oh, that's the cemetery. You don't go yeah. neither. I'm all like, Oh my God, the dead's coming. I'm like freaked out as a little kid. Yeah. So, you know, seeing films like that really 
grab holds to you and you know you're like wow and uh, like being eight and seeing road warrior and then seeing being 42 and seeing mad max was this fury road oh yeah. fury road was just like beautiful it was amazing i was like a little kid like you get all giddy yeah. yeah you saw that a bunch of times in the theater oh yeah you were posting about that every day on facebook <laughs> i saw i saw it about seven times but i have a friend up in chicago named phil meenan who saw it over 20 times and he's wow. m- much more of a fury road nut i mean he's got his whole leg tattooing and oh, he wow. um one of the cast members sent him um a disc signed by everybody mm-hmm. so it's you know it's it's pretty amazing now you said star wars force awakening looked cool but today i saw the trailer for rogue one i'm like that is awesome but those guys don't look as badass as what i pictured you know the rogue team to be you know in, in my you know seven or eight year old head when i first saw star wars the um no, it's all about the star cruisers uh, oh, uh battle alarms going off i do like the pov of at ats firing at you i thought that that was pretty amazing and and how they missed the boat on that in empire strikes back is kind of beyond me because it seems like such a natural now but yeah that it does look pretty great and you know there's the the black stormtrooper right. like the black costume not I'm, I'm not talking about an african-american stormtrooper as was in the force awakens but um that the costuming is like a, a black painted armor is just like you know you, you love to root for the villain if you're a horror movie fan oh yeah and seeing the um you know that you know that, that noirish take on on the classic star wars armor is pretty amazing but the um you know it's true you know like we say that um the stuff that was and we're at that age, I think if you're between 40 and 45, that you're really seeing a lot of the things that we obsessed over become reality. And I think it's because it's us, you know, that the people that are in a position to be making these movies are our age. Right. And, you know, you, whether you, you talk about, you know, you know James Gunn, also from St. Louis, um, and, you know, we talk about him constantly on, on, on this podcast, and he's, he's a great guy um, in charge of Guardians of the Galaxy. And... You know he's going to have a huge imprint on the marvel universe a lot of the stories that are being told in the current marvel movie universe go back to that same time right. when we were growing up reading comics and you know the thanos stuff was happening late 70s early 80s came back in the late 80s early 90s right so it's a multi-generational thing the same touchstone for different generations as characters go away and come back Right. And certainly the X-Men, you know, that the Age of Apocalypse is, is an early 90s story. Yeah. You know. Future Past was a late 70s, early 80s story. True. Uh, see, for me, like with comic books, like I remember all those characters coming through the 70s and 80s. Like, But see, what I remember growing up reading comic books for me was I started with Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. And it's a house of mysteries for me. Yeah, house of mystery, house of mystery, and weird and war. House of secrets and house of secrets. Weird war, house of mystery, house of secrets. For me, started when my see we would travel out here to do conventions. We'd drive from Missouri, so I had a box, I had a beer box, and it was a, a Schlitz cardboard beer box. Uh, it's probably my dad's beer <laughs> box. It was big Schlitz man. So I'd open it up, and I would put my comics in there, and I put my GI Joe figures in it, mm-hmm. and. uh 
The J.J. figures were three and three quarters. I wasn't born in the six. I didn't have the 12 inch ones. I had right, three right. and three quarters. I, I had those ones too. You know, <laughs> those are great. And we, we would mythologize about those too. I mean, the great things about those is that it had the little like um, story and stats on the back. Right. You know, like you'd read like Zartan went to, you know, he studied in St. Croix. I didn't know what St. Croix was, but I wanted to know about that. And I right. broke out the encyclopedias to find out, you know, so it's, I'm with you. No, I, yeah. I like the small G.I. Joe figures. But, I'm, but those are my comics. And I would sit there and I would read about like you know GIs fighting UFOs in 1942 or a guy travels to the time machine and meets his future son who's a gunnery sergeant in like the United States Galactic Marines fighting on Mars so I mean that's what was really cool I mean for me like superheroes were were okay they were secondary they were secondary but I I really enjoyed ROM the Space Knight you know that was amazing Uh, I got into X uh, the mutants like X-Men stuff like when it involved like the brood yeah. And oh, yeah, like 201, 202. Yeah. Or- yeah. It's funny, you know, now that you mention it, it's like the stuff that I was buying. You know, I'm, my birthday is two weeks before Halloween. So I would get excited every year seeing Halloween decorations go up because that meant my birthday was coming up. Right. So I knew I was going to be getting some presents. And then later I'd get candy. And so I really, I think I, I started to really enjoy monster, monster stuff more. Of course, born in Salem, you know, where, you know, which city USA and all the mysticism and all the, the, the fear, the Christian fear. But, um, the first stuff I was buying werewolf by night mm-hmm. and, um, Hulk comics because Hulk was on television. Right. And I really did gravitate towards the monster stuff and, and the DC mystery stuff. And then later when I discovered comic book shops, I'd go through those three for dollar bins and pull out great covers. And I started to notice that the guy, that I liked was this guy named Wrightson. Right. And I'd buy anything that he did. And then I was like, oh, there's this other guy. He's got my initials, you know, MWK, Michael W. Kaluta. And I'd start pulling all the Kaluta stuff. And after a while, and, and when I started to kind of get serious about collecting comics and I'd go into this one particular shop, the guys would be like, oh, you know, have you seen this guy's, these are old comics, but this guy still does comics. Right. And they showed me like Twisted Tales, mm-hmm. that amazing rights and cover where there's like a guy running with an axe. You don't even see his face. Right. Like it's a POV behind his, like his torso. Right. And there's like a rope with a bunch of heads. Right. And the rope is like through the holes in their neck and out their mouth and through their eyes and out their nose. And it's like the most graphic drawing I'd ever seen in my life at that point. Right. You know, not, not having a ton of access yet to Caravaggio. But, um... I remember seeing that and, and the worm turned and then I was like there was an ad on the back of that for Alien Worlds and it had a Dave Stevens cover right and so like all that Pacific comic stuff which would become right. Eclipse was this whole new generation uh, I think Bruce Jones was the editor over there right Bruce had written most of the Warren stuff right so creepy eerie Vampirella he had worked with Wrights and he had worked with Jeff Jones he had worked with Kaluta um, Barry Windsor Smith Richard Corbin um all the Filipino and Brazilian guys that had come into the um, the illustration world at that time, you know, Alfredo Alcala, um, San Julian, um, you know, um, was it Elias Bermeo, I think at the time, not Lee Bermeo who does the Joker, who I think is his son, but um, all these amazing, really gifted illustrators. Right. And as the kind of 70 magazine 70s died, 
80s magazines happen. So as creepy and eerie are kind of grinding to a halt and right. Famous Monsters is kind of starting to lose its life, um, Starlog magazine comes out, then Fangoria comes out, and then you have Heavy Metal, heavy you know, metal. the American version of Metal Hurlant, and then you have Marvel and Archie Goodwin, I believe it was, um, sets up Epic Illustrated. Right. And so all those guys that had been in the studio, Wrights and Kaluta Jones and right. Barry Windsor Smith, um, are now working um, semi-monthly on little fantasy stories. And right. so then you'd go back and you'd find out that these guys had worked in, you know, the Conan magazines. Right. But it's like, what a great time to have, to have gotten into collecting. You could still get that stuff so cheap. You know, Matt, no one collected magazines. And no one collected magazines. And, you know, comic books were still being collected. But it depended on what title and what it was. Yep. And it even goes, even goes with uh, toys and posters, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, like, you know, we'd get in the van and we would travel out here. And when you said, like, you know, Pacific becoming Eclipse and Dave Stevens. And we used to do some of the early. We've been doing San Diego Comic-Con since I was six or seven. Yeah. And what people got to understand, it was weird. back. Not, people go to it now and it's like. Like, if you're a Catholic, you're going to the Vatican. Yeah. And it's this, like, huge... It was a hotel lobby convention. It was a hotel lobby... Downtown. Yeah. It was at the the old San Diego Convention Center, right across the street. If dealers, people remember it, right across from the San Diego uh, jail. Yeah. So, the the prisoners would be yelling down at you, Hey, Superman, got some kryptonite for you. Or, (laughs) hey, Batman, look a little fat there. And you're you're looking around trying to figure out what it means. You see bars in the window. You see bars in the window. yelling. But uh, the thing was like, you you go to San Diego now and it's like glitz, glamour, acrylic, you know, statues, uh, you know, cosplayers. We used to go back in like Marvel Comics would have had like 10, eight foot tables that had splinters in them. And they had like the, ver- the very early POV setups. Yeah. It would like be Velcro. Yeah. And next to them would be Diamond, not Diamond, uh, DC Comics. Yep. And uh, then behind Marvel on the next aisle was a company known as Kamiko, which later members... Oh, yeah. Grendel and Mage. Grendel and Mage. Nexus. And then those members would later farm Dark Horse. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. And then, of course, you had Dave Stevens, who was on the opposite aisle. Mm -hmm. And then next to Kamiko, you had Stan Sakai. Yeah, doing Usagi Ujimbo. Yeah. And at that time, like people, I would tell you, like conventions, like you're saying, I'm going to a comic book convention. It was like... I'm going to go kill a school full of children. Yeah, you you just looked down upon it was it was not seen as a virtuous way to spend your time. No, and, and like now you go and like you see everyone in the industry walking around you're like, "Oh my god, that's such and such." I'm like, "I don't know who the guy is." Yeah, yeah. And, and those people didn't really walk around or they made they're very more approachable in the early days. Yeah. And as San Diego grew, they grew into the next uh convention center next to them like right across the hall. Yeah. And that's where um you people like Caliber Press, who gave us uh, Jail Bars, of The Crow, uh, Guy yeah. Davis and Gary Reed gave us Baker Street. Who Guy Davis went on to do much more stuff like Hellboy stuff, Sandman. He, Sandman. He also gave Sandman us Street Theater. Yeah, he gave us the uh, illustrations for Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Pacific Rim, and then also uh, Vince Locke, who everyone knows from Cannibal Court, but he also had Dead World. I have a Vince Locke death tattoo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Vince Locke's fantastic. I no. uh, love Dead World. Um, obviously, with the success of Walking Dead, um, I was hoping that people would go back and check out 
dead world because it was such a groundbreaking thing in its day and it was it was a gore comic it was a a, a through and through horrific zombie comic i mean it was it was fabulous it was black and white because you could never have gotten away with it in color right it was black and white what people also remember there was before nowadays you have retail incentive covers and a and b covers caliber press actually had the a and b covers because um one gory cover one gory cover one cover and then you had all the rest were like normal it'd be like a normal cover would be a group of zombies and then another color would be that group of zombies ripping apart a little boy yeah feasting yeah Yeah. so there's actually one like there's like a screaming baby cover yeah i remember that and uh I remember Vince, like, someone asked, how much is the cover? And he's like, oh, it's only $200. Now the original artwork. Yeah. The original artwork for yeah. the cover. That's eh, only 200 But also at the same time, like, you know, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird doing the turtle stuff all came well, out. I was seeing on the East Coast conventions quite a bit. Right. The, um, another interesting thing about that time is as it transitions, and I wasn't out in California yet when um, it was just downtown. Right. But I was out here in the early 90s when it was split between a dealer's room at the um, the hotel downtown okay. and the first A and B hallways, hallways yeah. at the convention. I think it, it was still just in the A and B hallway um, in 1991 or 1992. And then in 94 and 5, it expanded, I think, into, into hallway D. Right. And that's that was the explosion of the Vertigo line. And so Preacher was the first um, new series uh, that was released under the Vertigo line. Everything else had, the, in the high numbering, they would just switch over to Vertigo, like Doom Patrol and right. Swamp Thing and, and, and things like that. But that um, we were buying, you know, preacher pages for $40, $45, $60 a piece. <laughs> and, you know, that's going to debut pretty soon. That's that's going to be a series, and it's probably going to be very popular. You know, AMC has is, is done so well adapting... Um, you know, adult drama for their audience. Right. And, um, you know, with AMC, you know, like, unfortunately, when the cameraman died on Walking Dead, it wasn't anybody else we know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't know yet. <laughs> but well, uh, we, we know if we read the comic who it was, but right. we don't know if they're going to stick to the script. No. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to give a spoiler because I think that these two worlds are different. And I think right. that, um, you know, that um, Robert Kirkman has been very vocal about the fact that he's not married to the comic book script in adapting right. the the series but we know that a very major character died in issue 100 right and he died under exactly those circumstances right and if you don't want to hear that you know you can cover your ears for the next five seconds yeah and one two three four five glenn right. <laughs> glenn gets his head bashed in with the with the baseball bat right and you know we don't know what's going to happen now if you know i I don't. I mean, yeah. we saw who was lined up. It's going to be the guy you care the least about. You know, it's 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 going to be not a major character. Uh, I'm telling you, when it's Sasha, you, know, you think it's Sasha? I think it's uh, Sasha. Oh, I hope not. I hope <laughs> not. But um, if if for no other reason than to maintain the ethnic diversity of the cast, but um, I think it's going to be um, the guy that ushered them into the um, Alexandria. Oh yes. Because he's the only one that's been around the least amount of time. True. 
But he does great impressions. He does do great impressions. <laughs> We're going to take a break right there, speaking of impressions, uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. And I want to, I want to get in the habit of uh, letting people know where they can actually reach us because I realize that um, I have been getting a lot of great feedback, um, especially after the appearances on Kevin Smith. Um, I've noticed a lot of people are tuning into the show. I'm getting a lot of really great positive uh, emails uh, from people saying that they enjoy the, the interviews and that they, um, they, they enjoy my enthusiasm. I want to thank you guys for, for continuing to, to listen. And if you have any questions for me, you can send an email to info at popsequentialism.com. And that's P-O-P-S-E-Q-U-E-N-T-I-A-L-I-S-M.com. Um, that's pop, not pod. The, the podcast is pod sequentialism. But um, also I've been approached by, by certain advertisers who want to get in touch with uh, the entire network. You can send an email to me. You can also contact uh, my producer and engineer, Mason. Uh, you can send emails over to Meltdown Comics. But um, we'll be right back uh, with a word from our sponsors. Melt you. The school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am, of course, your host, Matt Kennedy. And I have with me here today uh, my, my friend Chris Sapp, who is, um, you know, lives a lifetime as a collector he's a second generation uh collector memorabilia dealer um no mean feat when you consider that we're both above 40 and um which makes him kind of a unicorn really Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um but also now that we've talked about what has sort of established your interest in these things i want to get down to talking about your artwork all right and um you know as we explained it's assemblage you you do use pieces of discarded and broken toys but you also use new toys sometimes right and every different stripe of toy the great thing that i noticed immediately i bought in heavy into one of your shows i think i bought 75 percent of one of your shows right that was the double hands major that's what i did folks was i did uh all the major arcana pieces in a tarot set as these three-dimensional um assemblage pieces in various sizes so there wasn't a consistency in the size of each piece some were big some were small it depended on what the subject was and i think i bought 10 or 12 of them yeah and uh they were purchased over at hyena gallery yep back in um, my friend bill schaefer also a a massachusetts native um (laughs) who came out um after a fire in his um apartment and was like that's it i'm moving to california very similar to how i moved out here i crashed my car in the snow i'm like that's it i'm leaving well snow's a little bit different (laughs) yeah then then losing everything in a fire absolutely i don't mean to belittle the the tragedy of that but um and and bill had been friends with um one of my mentors as a kid uh my my good friend paul marcure so it was good to for him to come out and kind of have people that he he sort of knew or at least knew through other people um he's his gallery hyena deals mainly in uh, dark art he's also sold um you know some controversial stuff he sells serial killer items and and other things of that nature now it's been converted into a half florist shop and um art gallery it's a very interesting transition i i don't know how to explain it i just know that i like it and uh he's in burbank he's right down the street from the studios gets a lot of great walk-in traffic from people that are really cool that collect stuff like pat oswald right. and um another kind of um you know cool geeks but, um, the gallery is very pretty, to put it that way, folks. It's very nice. It's very beautiful. Um, I would say uh, 
Bill's wife Sherry adds a little je ne sais quoi to it and makes yes. it <laughs> definitely <laughs> classed up the joint. But Bill is actually a really great guy, and he's a really great friend to all of us artists that have actually shown with him and mm-hmm. worked with him. So, I mean, you know, I'll have to say as much love and, you know, thank yeah. you very much to the hyena. And he's, you know, uh, he passed a lot of people on to us saying that, you know, he thought it'd be a great idea if we showed some of the people on his roster. And one thing that I'm really against as a gallerist is poaching, that if um, an artist is at a gallery and I know that they have representation, I don't seek them out. If they approach me and they're unhappy with the gallery situation, I'm happy to discuss it. But I, I don't go after people that I know that are repped. And um, as a, a big collector of some of the people that were showing over there, he would recommend. He's like, you know what? You should totally show him. It's like you, you get what he does. Right. You know, you're back running La Luz de Jesus. And this is going back to 2009. It's like, you know, absolutely. You know, I think that you can you can reach that next price threshold that he can't reach in that shop. And so you were the first person that I pulled over. Um, Bruce Eichelberger, who's um, who's also in the show with you this month, right. is another one of those artists who was showing um, sporadically between uh, Lolis de Jesus and, and um, Hyena with, with small objects. And um, Bruce has kind of hit that next level. I was able to get him into the La Halle St. Pierre in, in Paris and um, into Hay Magazine, uh, which magazine mainly specializes in self-taught um, pop surrealists. But, um, you know, you talked about making the tarot cards into these these three-dimensional objects but what do you what do you want when you when you're creating as a collector there's that split mentality between keeping something pristine (laughs) and having access to that perfect piece to make this other thing this other artwork that incorporates it in a different context you know, um, clearly there's juxtaposition, but um, that sometimes the pieces get really, really busy and you need just a lot of different things. And sometimes that means it needs that kind of valuable toy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's for so much artists for what I do is it's extremely hard in certain aspects where you're like, I want to do this piece and I'm working on all this stuff and I have these broken model kits. And I'm using these parts over here and I have these broken toys over here but I could really use this one part and you're like, but that's mine. Yeah. So sometimes I'll say yay or nay, mm-hmm. or I'll say, you know, let me see if I can find one that's really broken up or bashed. And I'll, I'll usually find that at, you know, I, since we were talking about conventions earlier, I do a, a toy show up in the Bay area. Mm-hmm. It's the San Jose toy show up in the, at, in the Santa Clara fairgrounds. And, um, I find some of my stuff there because I'll find like, oh, I need this skull figure, but I just really like the emblem on the body and I don't want to break mine apart just for the emblem. And I'll find it there, like look like it had been chewed up by a dog and I get it for a buck. Yeah. Then I do that. But when, if it's not using toys, sometimes it could be something as much as metal gears. Now, Watch parts. Watch parts. Stuff like some of that stuff is getting really... Ammunition. I mean, you've taken apart valuable <laughs> firearms. Yes. <laughs> like actual real guns. Actual real guns. And people, my friends who are gun collectors and gun enthusiasts look at me like I'm... Crazy for destroying a machine gun. Right. And, and things like that. Right. And what it is that people go, well, how do you get that? I'm like, well, I just go online and get the barrel. Or I yeah. just saw the barrel in half. Or I say... I don't need that, but I need the, the muzzle flash yeah. guard on, or I need this or that, or I find this stuff at swap meets and garage sales. Yeah. Like people don't understand, like there's so much stuff is laying around in people's garages and you're just like, how much? Like 
just take it uh, my uncle brought it back from korea yeah and you can obviously tell it's not used you can't use it you know if you try to put it back together it's gonna blow apart yeah so it's just you know i uh i disassemble it i i throw away like any stuff that could be you breaking should. the law yeah yeah and i just toss it out and i use this basically the husk of it now i've i've done that a few times on a, f- a few guns but most of the stuff i have is this you know it's been torch cut atf approved and you know it's safe you know it's not breaking any federal or state laws and we've gotten way more trouble sending taxidermy internationally than we've ever had selling your pieces which have ammunition in them. I mean we sold we sold a couple of pieces that you've had real grenades in. Right. You know, for instance. And you know, they're not live grenades. Right. <laughs> People ask me like, how do you like get that? I'm all like do you know how many times I go to swamp me and I just find hand grenades laying around? Yeah. Now first thing I look at I'm all like, I'll flip it up. I'm like, oh this is just the cement ones you can tell because it's been bored out yeah. and there's a cement block in it mm-hmm. or it's been bored out and you can totally see that it's not there's no gas in it yeah. and there's nothing you can do to it so you know i get those but then i've seen ones where i flipped over i'm like uh, uh there's still a pin in this and it's not colored and they're like oh that's a smoke grenade i'm like this is an old pineapple grenade yeah and this goes back to my dad my dad said when he was a kid they were playing around in an old house and they actually found a live mortar shell that was inside a closet and you know someone's uncle had brought it back from the war in 44 and you know during world war ii in france and you know my dad you know 1955 running around inside a friend's house like uh this is a live mortar round you really <laughs> hope the kids aren't using that for hockey practice no but the um and aside from incorporating these elements i mean i talked to jim of food not too long ago about you know transitioning from a collector into a creator right and that he he realized that he didn't have enough money to do both that he had to make a decision to stop buying other people's comics and start making his own comics and of course it's a very different milieu i mean he can just take out a piece of illustration board and you can start drawing and start making a comic with what you do you need materials you need raw materials you need to find parts that become interesting other things right and at what point does the collector in you get squeamish about destroying something that's mint like i saw a a videotape that was making the rounds this is many years ago it's called in love with toys and it's a video uh, that opens with a recreation of kids opening up um toys on christmas day in 1979 (laughs) and they're like tearing open like you know a giant ig88 and they're just ripping through the box and it's a recreated box but it looks perfect you know it looks like a real real toy and as a toy collector remember we i think we watched as me gaston and coop i think we're watching it and we just screamed like watching this happen (laughs) it was it was worse for for a toy collector to watch this than, than to watch like a real snuff movie and we called it toy snuff you know that to, to see somebody willfully destroy something so valuable but um that that has to enter into it at a certain point you have to think like oh i could use this this little mars attacks figure right you know that i only have mint in box on my shelf but i need it i need it to make this piece and this piece and this will be the thing that makes this piece exactly what it needs to be well so stuff like that like i've gotten a little bit better of age mm-hmm. i'm looking i'm like i'm not getting younger definitely getting older and i've had to look at i've had to actually pare down what i want to do so i look at stuff now i'm like 
this can be sacrificed and this will be sold. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. But you also have access. And I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's the thing I have access a to. A very big thing is that you, because you are so well-known, well-regarded, and have access to the different conventions that you do, that you can think, I can find another one of these. Or right. I can, this one's in great shape. I can find one that's in less good shape. Right. And that's the, the thing, like, you know, when I said about the, the toy show in San Jose, it, yeah. it is like that. You go there and it... Depending on the certain, because they do it quarterly, and um, it's put on by Joe Castro of Time Tunnel Toys. Time Tunnel, I remember those ads in the back of Fangoria. <laughs> and so he puts on this awesome toy show, and it's he has a two day show and he has a one day show, depending on what it is. And uh, I usually get lucky and I find stuff, or I find stuff like, like I wish I had, I could find the nineteen sixties, you know, maybe a beat up GI Joe or just maybe a bunch of rusted out hot wheel cars and I'll find them there mm -hmm. and I, I don't pay much for them yeah. when, I, when I have to use them for my artwork now if I'm finding something I'm like man as a kid I'm looking for a green ghost game now granted I'm not going to turn this green ghost game into a piece of artwork right, I'm right. like you want that I want that you want to play with that but then I get there and I'm all like yeah someone has it and it's a few hundred dollars and it's mint in box damn it yeah yeah <laughs> But, you know, doing this show here, it was mainly stuff that influenced me as a child mm -hmm. and influenced me. Like, it could be from comic book TV and movie. Mm -hmm. Now, some movies are current because, yes, I did do a Fury Road. But I was like, I was like a little kid because I remember seeing, like I said, Road Warrior. Yeah. But I've seen, you know, Fury Road. I was like, this is so beautiful. I'm like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I was a I geeked out on it hard. Brennan McCarthy was my first guest. You know, <laughs> and Brennan worked on that script for over 12 years. Um, and I talked to somebody recently who reminded me, I think it was my friend Kate. And um, she was she had modeled for a comic that um, um, Jason Alexander, uh, Jason Sean Alexander had done. And Miller had wanted him to do the comic. Right, and it turns out that there's a very similar character to Furiosa in Jason's comic, which he would have had absolutely no ac access to the script. Right, and so I think it may have been a case of this kind of spontaneous generation where these these two people are thinking alike, and they produce um, these two things in in a vacuum. But um, George wanting to do the right thing, wanted to bring this guy into his universe, but it didn't end up happening. Right, and um, and then the the Mad Max comic kind of died. But Jason's comic is actually now getting published, and I think it's doing fairly well. And I guess you can Google it and, and figure it out. It's, it's obviously a Jason Sean Alexander comic that features a one-armed uh, woman. But right. um, it's, it's interesting that these things can exist, you know, just as with, and we've talked about this at, at Infinitum, and I think it would be um, noticeably absent if we didn't address it, that there's another guy named Chris... <laughs> He spells right. his name kind of strange. Uh, Christopher Sapp spells his name K-R-Y-S-T-O-P-H-E-R. -E it is how it is spelled on his birth certificate. I can <laughs> tell you I've seen his license because I've, I've cut him checks. Right. And, um, and there's also Chris Cooksey, who is a K-R-I-S and then K-U-K-S-I. 
and I'm both working in assemblage. Um, we have we have the love for building three dimensional stuff, guys. That's what it is. It's, yeah, that's what it all basically boils down. And both to. of you can do other things too because yeah. he's actually a really great painter. You're a very good illustrator, right? And um, but it's there's always seemingly somebody who thinks that one has copied the other, and I can tell you because I was around, you know, <laughs> that they were both doing the same type of stuff at the same time. But it's different, and there's there is a different aesthetic to the way that you work and the way that he works. It is different work. It is you know you you both do your own thing, and I think that um, with an educated eye, it's easy to spot. But that um, some people think that you know if if I don't know anybody that would say well Picasso painted in blue, so no one can paint in blue, you know like like that type of thing. Right. That that does happen because I, th- I th- you know the art world is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And you've been in the same shows. I mean, we've been in the same shows. We deal with the same people in same galleries. Yeah, same collector base. So it is what it is. But hey, you know, and um, yeah, you know, I enjoy his work and hopefully he enjoys mine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, like illustrating base, like for me, like I used to just illustrate, you know, if people knew me in California. I just mainly illustrated band posters. I was yeah. mainly doing death rock posters for like 45 grave and mm-hmm. bands like Frankenstein. And I did a show that got canceled. I was doing the specimen alien sex fiend poster. I had the poster printed. Everything was going good. Get told, you know, right when I get to the clip, Oh, the show has been canceled. The guys doing it didn't get the work visas Yeah, for the band. You're like, you're like, Oh man. I also missed seeing specimen at a show in Boston in 1989 where they were the opening band for check this bill out. So it was supposed to be, specimen opening and I guess their equipment got stolen in New York and they just flew back to England but the, um, the next band up was Faith No More <laughs> the next band up was Soundgarden and the headliner was Voivod oh wow so two months later both Faith No More and Soundgarden were headlining their own shows right you know both of them exploded at the same time um, loud, Louder Than Love um, blew up for Soundgarden the real thing um you know, they released from out of nowhere was the first single, and almost a year later, Epic broke. Right. You know, so it's it's, it's very interesting how that happens. When you're talking about that, like, um, it just goes back to me, like people I, I you know I deal in concert posters. And Matt and I were talking about this earlier over lunch, and um, one of the tour posters that makes me laugh, and then I believe it's a Lindsey Coon poster. It's two dinosaurs humping on one another, and the um, poster makes me laugh because you look at who's middle who's headlining and who's the beginning band and the headlining band was a band called green jelly now i remember green jelly as green jello and if people don't so know i was green- at this show i was at this show this is at the, like the western rehearsal rooms if i'm remembering it could, if it's a lineup i'm thinking that okay. it is it okay green jello haunted garage a little bit no no haunted garage okay tool Tool was the opening, opening band. band. Yeah. Yeah. Tool was open and Hole was in the middle. Hole, okay. So this was, I mean, Haunted Garage could be, I have to look at it again, but I always remember that I was all like, wow. Well, the Green Jello um, live record that came out, you can hear me on top of one of the speakers, <laughs> like yelling in between songs. But um, that was recorded at the Western um, Rehearsal Jam Space, which used to be above Hollywood Billiards. Okay. And if I remember correctly, the same drummer played in all three bands. But um, it was it it was first. I think it was. I think Tool opened, and then Haunted Garage was in the middle, okay. and Green Jello was the headliner because it was their space. Right. And it was seriously like people who had rehearsal space in that building were already in the room, 
and then they decided to make it into a party and they just started like charging money at the door and then the kegs came up and it was like this really organic thing <laughs> and by the time green jello around like we should this sounds great we should record this you know mm-hmm. and and i think they were running through someone was probably taping off of the soundboard anyways but that ended up getting released as a record it, it's it's crazy how that stuff happens oh yeah and, and uh i mean i mean some of the posters i look at because i mean I kind of laughed at because, you know, Sean Yazit from White Zombie. Yep. And also Famous Monsters. Mm-hmm. And uh, with beautiful photography, by the way, guys. She, you know, came out of her book a couple years ago. I'm you know, in the band. I'm yeah. in the band. Yeah. And I just we, rem- we did the release for that because I've known Sean <laughs> going back to almost Massachusetts as well. Uh, I'm drooling right now. <laughs> no, and it made me laugh because she's like, hey, guys, remember when uh, I was reading the, you know, the book page and you're like, when uh, Marilyn, when we open up? Uh, when Marilyn Manson opened up for Danzig and you know yeah. and White Zombie opened now it's everything's like flipped around yeah. on all these bands yep. so I mean it's it's a, it's a pretty awesome thing and yeah. then uh, and, you know some of the other posters I worked on I did a lot of stuff for Psychability I did yeah. did Minute Argo I did Meteors yeah. the original lineup for the Necromantics I did all that stuff mm-hmm. when it came in the early two, 2000s that's my illustrating history guys because I did try my hand at comic books but see with comic books for me I liked a lot of the underground stuff Yeah, I was a big fan of Wrightson because I liked how this style was. I'm a big fan of Guy Davis. Yep. Because of how his style cross hatching, and also Vince Locke. And now, yeah. granted, there's a million other artists out there that are great. Um, uh, you know, Dave McKean. I like. I like. I guess you might say I liked all that abstract yeah. work coming yeah. in the comic books. And then you like mean like Ted McKeever, who was like doing some very interesting. He did a um an adaptation of the outsider the hp lovecraft story mm-hmm. that i remember seeing before eddie current okay so the early ted mckeever in some publication that only a couple issues came out but everything in the issues were great it was all really weird stuff that we would enjoy i remember seeing his artwork and it was kind of very sparse but it was scratchy and it was exactly what it needed to be right <laughs> you know and eddie campbell was like that too when he was doing um bacchus and um the, the independent stuff that he was doing and and I think I probably discovered that work through Steve Bissett, who was publishing his stuff in um, in Taboo. But um, yeah, so Mike Zuli, who was part of Mirage. I can show you, yeah, the Mike Zuli pages I have <laughs> that are incredible. And yeah, I guess Puma Blues is is come back out again. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going through and I actually found uh, some of my Eastman sketches I got from Kevin Eastman, and I found Eric Talbert stuff who worked with Kevin Eastman too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an anchor. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the glory days. And I mean, we were talking about the glory days, like 70s and 80s. Like, yeah, I grew up in the birth of video stores. And that was always amazing. And kind of like Randall in Clerks. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they literally had certain sections. This is family. This was horror. And, yeah. you know, that's when you started getting, you know, stuff coming that was, you know, they had Halloween. Like Halloween 1 and 2. And then maybe... Then the Argento stuff started coming. Yeah. And then all the stuff that was coming out through Magnum Home Video. And yeah. Vestron. And oh, Vestron. <laughs> so, remember that? <laughs> dong, dong, dong. <laughs> you can yeah. still see the, the label. The VCA, which was also an adult movie label, was also dabbling in uh, independent releases. Really grade Z stuff. But the, um, you'd also see like really groundbreaking stuff, like um, you know things that would kind of mix those those areas, you know, the stuff that was 
like kind of abstract and sci-fi like cafe flesh but it's also pornographic and um those guys also end up doing that remake of Caligari, the Dr. Caligari right. film, which is like a really kind of amazing piece of video art from the 1980s. See, see like video f- stuff for me was, I still, at that time, I was a little, was a little kid, so it was just basic, mm-hmm. and, you know, horror stuff and science fiction stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff was still seen in the films. Like, um, one of the pieces that didn't get into the show, guys, just due to time and me editing out, was Excalibur. Yeah. When I was seven I believe I saw Excalibur and going to the theater and the first scene I see is Ian McShane you and Bruce Wayne yeah yeah humping on uh, Morgana's uh, mom in a full plate metal armor you're just like oh my god and then full frontal nudity as I recall but I was just like amazed by this whole whole movie and whole film yeah um Later on, like as I, my my folks ended up moving from Missouri out to California, mm-hmm. just because there was like a convention almost every other week in California. In yeah. California, you go where the money is. Yeah, and uh, now this goes, folks. If people remember, like now you turn on your cable. If those who have cable still, now you have HBO. You have HBO one through a hundred channels. Yeah, and then you have Showtime. You know, channel. Showtime 1 through Channel 50. Skinamax. And Skinamax has always been Skinamax. Yeah. And the reason why I'll tell you that, when we first started getting cable, we had HBO 1. Yes, Beastmaster was always on. <laughs> uh, Showtime. Cinemax, which was Skinamax because you'd always find Young Charity's Lovers or any of the million Emmanuel movies. Yeah. Or, and the, the, not the... Um, it, the, like the Black Emanuel movies would pop up, not just the mm-hmm. Sylvia Christel ones, right. but the um, Laura Gemster ones would pop up on right. that. Yeah. And then there was where I really got my fixed on films because I wanted to understand, you know, my, my dad's stuff, it was still growing, but I knew the other stuff. There, There is a documentary on this cable channel. And if anyone from the age of 40 up to 55 or older, was Z Channel. Yeah, Z Channel was great. Z Channel. There was a, docu- was a great documentary on Z Channel. Yeah. It's and Night Flight is back on now. Awesome. I subscribe to Night Flight. <laughs> like I, I pay to get it onto my Roku or whatever. I definitely gotta get that. Um, no, Z Channel opened Stuart Shapiro, man, mm-hmm. he's great. Uh, Z Channel opened me up to uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Mm. Uh, of course, you know, he would have he would show blocks where people are saying they Z Channel would show you blocks of films. So they'd show you Terry Gilliam stuff and then you would, you would have Brazil Jabberwocky Jabber you know Jabberwocky and you might have like <laughs> and then you have maybe one of the Python films were thrown in yeah. and then they would start you after that was done then you would get Holy Mountain and El Topo what like they're, they're on Z Channel on Z Channel yeah they ran wow. you would be like oh my god and then wow it may go back and they to, certainly didn't have the rights to it so <laughs> true but I mean, there was so much stuff that was being shown, and during like Halloween, like those four cable channels would run horror movies. Like HBO and Showtime would one would show like Friday Thirteenth one through three, mm-hmm. and then Show uh, Showtime would pick up four five if, if number four and number five were out, and then one would have Halloween three, one would have Halloween two and one. Yeah, we would get those on the local stations. Like I remember Channel Thirty Eight. In Boston, WSBK um, ran the movie Loft with uh, Dana Hershey, 
and they would run unedited film sometimes and they right. they and they would do commercial interruption but they wouldn't edit the material right so it would have an odd running time probably right and i remember seeing them run halloween all night long on halloween right just, that that first movie again and again and again and again right and then like like cinemax would give you like return of the living dead and dawn of the dead or day of the dead yeah. and then of course it's cinema turning into cinema they would later. give they would give you nocturna and then you would go into some you know italian you know soft core yeah. film but z channel would go okay we're going to give you some joe diamato movie yeah we're going to give you dario gento we're going to give you baba and fulci and they'll we'll give you some blind dead stuff yeah. so that's where you'd be like oh my god what's this and I'm, Sorio, yeah i'm not watching hbo or showtime or cinemax i don't know what oh and you'd be like oh my god what is this you know, I mean, the look to it, the shame of it is that things weren't being broadcast widescreen. And, um, you know, when we are, the first time I saw Tombs of the Blind Dead was probably on Elvira. <laughs> I saw it there too. It. <laughs> and I remember seeing like, thinking like, this is pretty artfully shot. And it reminded me a little bit of Licho Fulci Zombie. And when we remastered those films with, um, with Anchor Bay at Blue Underground and that they wound up being Blue Underground titles, we did the box of the four the four blind dead films. I remember looking at them and I had to compare aspect ratios to make sure everything was good. And I, I was blown away by how well made they were, right. especially the first one. Right. But it's just, it's a really good movie. And when I saw, you know, house by the cemetery and, you know, city of the living dead, right. um, and finally saw them widescreen. I was like, Oh, you know, they zoomed in on these, these are widescreen films and right. it really adds a lot to the composition and it really impressed me and by the time we got around to releasing Zombie I think we had to do a deal split with Media Blasters or somebody to do these two different DVDs and um, you know they their documentary just really subsisted of a stationary camera interview with every person who was still alive and some of that stuff is just not very interesting whereas yeah. our segments were directed by David Gregory you know who has um, since gone on to direct you know Theater Bazaar and you know some really great independent horror stuff that he's been working on in addition to his and, and the documentary about the honor of Dr. Moreau which is fantastic the Richard Stanley the Richard Stanley documentary yeah no it's I watched that unbelievable Michael this is amazing and you really like why can we have the film that Richard Stanley wanted to give us I mean that really does seem like it would have been an amazing film I'm a huge Jodorowsky fan okay but I also know that if he had made the Dune that he wanted to make it would have been laughable. Right. There's just no way. It would have been like the Apple, you know, where it's got all these these big ideas, but it's it would not have aged well. Right. You know, and it, it would have been just one of these kind of bad curiosities. So it, it might have been great that instead that movie turned into Alien and all these other films that right. are masterpieces because the, the time wasn't there yet. They, they hadn't really lined it up. Nah. But and Stanley, his... His Moreau would have been amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, Richard Stanley's Il Moreau, like, I, I, with me, when I, when I became a teenager, the first one that introduced me was his hardware movie. Hardware, yeah. And... I like um, Dust... Dust Double? A lot, too, yeah. With me, like, when hardware came out, I was just like, oh, that's the guy from Hamburger Hill. Of course, it's Dylan McDermott. Yeah. But most of all, I'm like... And one of the guys from Fields of the Nephilim, right? And the guy, Carl McCoy from Fields of the Nephilim. And as a kid growing up in, like, 
in the goth death rock stuff. I'm like, Fields Nelson, this is awesome. And I got turned on to it by a friend of mine, by mm-hmm. Rogan. I used to work for Music Plus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's like, have you heard Fields of Nelson? He's like, here, here's a live a show. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. And then I went hunting down the videos and I found the videos at the record store that I help every so often at Black Hole Records. And I watched them. I was like, this is amazing. And then when I saw... I heard about like Carl McCoy might be in it. And then when it shows him, I'm like, oh, is that Carl McCoy? Yeah. You know, the six year old, you know, teen in me was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then of course, I be- I think the uh, the dwarf or the midget in the uh, uh, handyman guy that's, that works with Dylan McGermott at the junkyard, I think he also is the same guy in the quite unusual video for Front 242. Right. I was like, oh, this is cool. And like robots, a homicidal in this apocalyptic future. And, you know, yeah. I dreamt it was raining. I feel like an alligator, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just amazing. And then the, and then I saw you came out of Island Dr. Moreau. Now, see, I, I love Dr. Moreau. But the one I was familiar with was the one that aired on ABC during Thanksgiving time. Uh, the 70s one? The 70s uh, Charlton one. Heston. Charlton Heston yeah. and Michael York, I believe. Yeah. I was like, oh, cool. And then I saw the stuff. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And I'm like, it's going to be good. When I saw it, I saw it. You know, I was barely in my in my twenties when I saw it. I still enjoyed it because I was it's the kid in me, like in the monsters and stuff like that. Now I'm looking at it and you see what yeah. he was going to well, offer you. See you. What a mess it was! Like it yeah. was clearly a film that had gone through multiple directors and a change in direction. And right. the, you can see the on-screen animosity between Val Kilmer mm-hmm. and um, Marlon Brando, and what I think is great about um, David Gregory's documentary is that. You know, you, you you get the sense that everybody thought that Marlon Brando was crazy already. What they might not have known is how difficult to work with Val Kilmer is apparently. Right. And you know, the, every every single person they interviewed, you know, has the same thing to say. And it's like you. you know, oh yeah. It's not a one sided conversation. At, at least Marlon Brando's going to ask you, "Here, do you want the cookie? Here, the cookie. <laughs> get the butter." But then you know, you know, Val Kilmer, yeah, because you know he just came off of what like. The Saint, maybe, or something? Saint or Top Terrible. Gun. Top yeah. Gun. I mean, he should have came off Top Secret. It would have been much better. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> sure. Well, that might be a good place to leave off, you know. Um, but again, I want to I wanna have you shout out some websites and how people can get a hold of you. Okay, guys. Well, I have my own website. It's ChristopherSapArt.com. And it's K-R-Y-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-A-P-P-Art.com. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, you can also find me through Facebook and through Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, La Luz, La Luz de Jesus Art Gallery, of course, and as well as the Hyena Gallery. You can find my stuff there. And that's H-Y-A-E-N-A. Right. And then also Night Gallery, Fine Art, that's in Santa Ana. Two different night galleries. So you want to make right. the distinction that um, this is the one in Santa Ana, California, right. not the one in Los Angeles. Right. The, it's the Santa Ana one. So you can find my work there as well as, you know, see me at shows when I ha- I'm there. But most of the time when I'm at the shows, I'm there actually, you know, I'm helping my father's company out, you know. and What's his web address? Uh, right now, they're re- reworking their entire website. Okay. Because it just, it didn't flow right. It was like incorrect. You know, you'd, you'd like. Hey, Timeout errors. Timeout <laughs> errors. Or you're like, oh, I need to find a 
short circuit poster and you type you type it into look into the, and then you pull up a you know here comes Sika movie poster <laughs> and you're all like no no that's well not. the worm would turn for that fan that's for sure yeah you're like oh oh Johnny Five definitely alive yes <laughs> yes but uh, the next show I'm actually at you know my artwork is still hanging up at La Luz until May first and then April twenty second through the twenty fourth you can find me at the Monster Palooza. Uh, trade show and exhibit that's at the Pasadena convention. That's April 22nd and 24th. Uh, and for people who find this next year, that will also be true. <laughs> right. If you find this next year too. Yeah. Um, Monster Blue is a great horror trade show. Um, on the East Coast, you have Chiller, Chiller and Mad Monster in North Carolina. You have Horror Hound in Cleveland. And then you have Lloyd's show, which is Texas Frightmare in Texas, which is great. Those are all great shows. Monster Pose is in the same vein, but it's on the West Coast. You know, it's great. It deals with practical makeup effects, practical prop effects. And everybody lives out here. And so everyone lives out the, here, yes. The guest list is, is incredible. Yeah, the guest list gets more amazing, but it's not who they have as guest guys. It's actually who shows up just to buy, to buy stuff to buy stuff yeah. and you know it you know i i will say yeah guillermo de toro has been there yeah. but one of the best stories with him being there him and guillermo was uh it was everyone thought guillermo wasn't going to come because he was doing post-production on pacific rim and my friends and i were walking across the uh, parking lot my friend looks over and says, that looks like guillermo but that can be any, any heavy set Hispanic guy or <laughs> Spanish guy. I don't know. Guillermo is Guillermo. He's and, easy to spot. And he's like, do you see me? I'm over here. I'm waving my hands. Do you <laughs> see me? I'm over here. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, it can't be him. Well, folks, it was Guillermo. He did. But who he walked in with? He walked in with J.J. Abrams. Nice. And everyone's just like, oh, my God. But two of the most nicest gentlemen. I mean can't say Guillermo will be there this year but it's who comes and who buys there and the bump into factor the bump in oh. factor yeah and it's really a great show and it's geared for the family even though you'll see monsters and stuff and other things but it's a great show so I do have to say that's the next place I'm at and then after that I'm just you know laying low and working on new work and trying to you know I'm a dad, so <laughs> I have to juggle uh, two girls and and a wife, and that you know, that's a full time job. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. I want to thank you again for coming on. And again, this is uh, you've been listening to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and uh, we hope you'll uh, tune in again soon next week. <laughs>